prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for mercies that are new every morning uh, from you to us. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the love that you have lavished upon us. Thank you for the opportunity to love you in return. And Lord, thank you for the work that you do in us to both save us from our sins, to save us from the bondage and slavery to sins, to reconcile us to you and to reconcile us one to another into a local body. Thank you for the gift of the church. Lord, we pray that this morning would be fruitful in growing us in our sanctification, increasing our usefulness for your purposes. Help us to love you more than the things of this world, more than ourselves. Help us to submit and yield where your instruction uh, from your word is so clear and so useful. We pray that you would get the glory and the honor for all these things. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple things just to follow up, uh, a couple kind of housekeeping things I want to put in front of you. One on your folder, if you took EQ year one um, and your other binder, that resources packet at the end, like the group of pages on the back of your folder, you may want to pull that out and put it in your new folder. So I didn't have Karis make new timelines and the chronology of the Old Testament sheet and all the things in the back. If this is your first time in EQ, you should have those in the back of your folder. And if you don't, let me know. But if, um, if you did year one and you have your binder and you have those things at home, transfer them into this one because in the future weeks we'll be reviewing some of those things. If you lost your, lost your binder, excuse me, um, shame on you. You don't get it, you don't get any more. We already get, no, uh, just email Karis or email me and I can pass it on to Karis and we can get you uh, new inserts for that. The other thing I want to bring up is uh, this February, we're going to be having a group of men go to the Courageous Churchmen Conference in Jupiter, Florida. We did that last year. It was, who in here went last year? Just three of us from this group. Wow. Okay. Then I'm talking to the right group. Uh, Grace Emanuel Bible Church in Jupiter, Florida is the founding church of the Expositor Seminary and a wonderful partner church, uh, just very, very like-minded, one of the, one of the most like-minded churches uh, to Grace Bible Church and Gilbert Bible Church as well. And they put on a conference every year that is for pastors and men in leadership or men who aspire to grow in character and discipline before the Lord. And it's called Courageous Churchmen. It's a wonderful time of teaching, uh, but what really makes the time is the fellowship with both the men there, but the men uh, in that, that we send together. I think last year we had 11 men go from Gilbert Bible Church. We flew out on a Sunday and we returned on a Thursday. Um, Karis is going to be sending out information about registration. It's early February, and if you're able uh, we're inviting all the men in EQ to participate. If you're able to come, highly encourage you to do so. Uh, and there will be information that you can look for from Karis. And if you have any questions about it, want to know more information, uh, let me know. Uh, typically, what's required is we got to get out there, airfare-wise, and then the conference, which is relatively cheap. And then there's a wonderful family. I think they're going to host us again this year. I'm kind of assuming so but some good friends. They've become good friends over the years, the Axtells. I don't know if some of you met the Axtells uh, 
last summer when we were launched, but still at Grace Bible Church, they came and visited. And they're just a, they are the uh, pinnacle of hospitality and, and love and, and Christian charity. So anyway, wanted to put that before you early February this coming year. Um, if you can take the time away, it is, it is well worth it. It's a wonderful time. And if you have questions, let me know. All right, let's jump into our outline for this morning. We're going to talk about a holy household growing in personal character. That's how God makes his church holy, through individuals growing in holiness. There's not, the, the collective holiness of the church will never rise apart from its individuals growing in holiness. You're not going to have an extraordinarily holy church and then a bunch of immature, unholy participants of that church. It, it makes perfect sense. And so when we think about God's call for a holy household, that his church is to be holy, that his bride is to be holy, that's going to come through the means of each individual taking personal accountability to grow before the Lord in their sanctification, to grow in holiness. And as we've been going through EQ over the last year and Two weeks ago, we talked about the, the disciplines, heart, home, and ministry. And when we think about growing in personal holiness, this is really a discipline one issue, shepherding your heart towards personal holiness. But the implications of this discipline will bleed into, it'll saturate every other area of your life. And so to be faithful in the home, you need to take your personal holiness seriously. To be useful and, and a blessing to the church, to maximize your usefulness for the local body, for the glory of God, you need to take your personal holiness seriously. God desires for us to be holy. We saw that in First Peter just a couple weeks ago. Be holy, for I am holy. We're all called to this standard to be set apart for the purposes of God, for uh, his use, and that's his design. So I want, to, I want to do this. Let's look at a couple passages as we think about God's design for the church that will help just inform our thinking regarding the pursuit of personal holiness. And then what we're going to do is we're going to land in Titus 2, and we're going to see some specific kind of rapid-fire instruction for Christian virtue in the household of God, and really kind of all the categories that we might find in the local church. So go ahead and turn to Ephesians 2. We're going to start in Ephesians, and we'll work our way eventually to Titus, but we're going to jump around a little bit before that. God's design for a holy church. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 19. And we know Ephesians 2, the first uh, 11 verses, 10 verses are a wonderful explanation of the gospel, God's work to rescue sinners, take them from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's all about his, his grace, his work, his giving of faith um, in the believer's life. And then if you jump down to verse 19, Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And we know that word saints is the holy ones, the set apart ones. Every Christian is a saint. You're set apart unto God, a holy individual. 
And we haven't arrived in the practical holiness, but positionally before the Lord, we've been set aside for his purposes and are of God's household. As a believer, you are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into what? A holy temple. God's design for the church, for his people, is that you are fitted together, you're part of a people, you're part of a local assembly of believers connected to one another that God is fitting together, forming, building up into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Jump down to Ephesians 5. Here we have this wonderful instruction for husbands and wives, and Paul actually appeals to Christ and his bride, the church, to inform husbands' thinking on how they are to care for their wives. And in that, he actually teaches us about Christ's desire for his bride, the church. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, why did, God, why did Christ give himself up for his bride? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And here we see Christ's desire his giving of himself was for the purpose to purchase for himself a holy church, a holy bride, and we are part of that. That's God's intention for the church, that we would be holy. Now jump over to First Peter. I know this is familiar to us because we've been in it. And just a couple more. First Peter chapter 1. Verse 14, as obedient children, or better said, as children of obedience, that's your identity. You are a child of obedience if you're a Christian. God doesn't have categories for ongoing perpetual obedient children, or excuse me, disobedient children. Your identity is one as such. This is the kind of children God has, obedient children, children of obedience. Do we obey perfectly all the time? No, but he sets us apart to submit to him to grow in godliness. So as children of obedience, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And then I want you to see something that we'll see in the coming weeks, and that's First Peter 2. And this is very similar to what Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. But in verse 9, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. And then we see the, the response to this identity change that God has brought about in making you his people. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, that's fleshly passions, fleshly desires, which wage war against the soul, but rather keep your behavior excellent 
among the Gentiles. So, and the thing that they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. We could go on and on and on about God's call for the Christian to grow in godliness. It is on God's mind. Is it on your mind? Lord, help me be holy. Help me honor you. Help me put off sin. Help me put on righteousness. It it needs to be. It needs to be for each of us as God has called us to be a people set apart for his purposes and for his possession. Sin matters. Sin matters. Uh, how, how does this happen? Or why, why does it matter, rather? Turn to the right just a little bit. First Peter 2. If all we had from Scripture was instruction and God never explained to us why, that would be enough. God, God doesn't owe us an explanation. You know, you tell your children, put your toys away. Why? Just obey daddy. That would be okay. <laughs> like, he's God, we're not. He's Lord of the universe. We're not. We are called to submit. He doesn't owe us an explanation. He gives us one. He helps us understand. First of all, his commandments are not burdensome. They're expressions of his love. We need to embrace his commandments because ultimately they're for our good. But there's also practical implications to whether or not we take our sanctification seriously or to what degree we take our spiritual growth seriously. Look at 2 Peter 1. And I want to read verses 5 through 11. Peter says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence. Okay, so he's saying get after it. All diligence. Don't moderately go after this. Don't put it as kind of a a lesser priority, but all diligence. So applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Be godly. In your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours, so if you've applied diligence to this growing of Christian virtue in these wonderful ways of, that, that we just read, If they're yours and are increasing, then what is the outcome of that? They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, we see it again, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Here we see the, the connection of your diligence applied to growing in personal character, personal virtue, connected to your usefulness. Which conversely, what does that mean? If you neglect these things, if you're not applying yourself in diligence, you're going to limit your usefulness. You might actually render yourself useless for the purposes of God. Now, wherever you're at in your sanctification, the Lord has called you to himself. He's given you a spiritual gift. You're called to employ your gifts for the benefit of others, for the building up of the church. There's no, well, I guess I just shouldn't be a part of the church because I'm not good enough. That's not understanding God's word correctly. 
God calls you to be connected regardless of where you're at in your sanctification. However, sin is destructful. Uh, It divides. It brings hindrances. It brings a guilty conscience, not unto condemnation for the believer, but there is the weight of a guilty conscience that is restrictive. And your practical usefulness for God will be increased regardless of where you are. If you're, if you're struggling sanctification-wise, the God's remedy isn't go clean yourself up and come back to the church when you're good enough. God's design is embrace the church and apply yourself with diligence to growing in godliness in the context of the church so that you will increase your usefulness. Okay, so no pity parties allowed. No, well, I guess I just don't have my life together. I got to get out. I'm useless. Woe is me. That's wrong thinking. That's selfish thinking. That's self-centered thinking. That's rejecting God's wisdom of his means to actually growing you. So don't, don't entertain those thoughts, but recognize the importance of pursuing holiness. And as I just asked, is it a priority in your life? Lord, help me grow. Whatever's going on in my life right now, Lord, what would holiness look like? How can, I, how can I honor you? These areas of weakness in my life that I know exist, how can I get after them intentionally? Because it matters. It matters for you before the Lord. There's the blessing of a clean conscience, of a tested faith revealed. There's eternal rewards for those who are faithful before the Lord. Wonderful, wonderful things. But there's also the benefit for the body that you're connected to. For the local church, your godliness is contagious. It is effective. It is a blessing. It is a benefit to those around you. God uses in a a wonderful synergistic way the growth of individuals connected with one another to create ongoing perpetual growth in the local church. We need each other. We don't, praise the Lord, that we don't have to go grow in our faith alone. That is never his design. I've just got to get some things worked out in my life and then I'll be able to step into church. Right now, they wouldn't understand. That's that's sinful thinking. That's wrong thinking. That's thinking outside of God's wisdom and design for the church. So how does this happen? Let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, Ephesians 4, this is a wonderfully informing verse for us in regards to body life in the church. We've talked about it several times. We'll talk about it several times more. We can't hear it too much. Ephesians 4, verse 16, Paul says, well, I'll start in verse 14. So as a result, we are to no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. From whom, so from Christ, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's God's design for his church, that we are fitted together under Christ, under the lordship of Christ, we are connected with one another. And when that's happening and each member is functioning properly, we maximize the building up of the body in love. There's an emphasis on truth. 
sound doctrine, avoiding wrong thinking, wrong doctrine. And what's going to enhance all of this is pastors, elders, equipping saints for ministry, and then the saints, you all, the church, us together, linking arms, joining together, encouraging one another, building up of itself in love. That's how this happens. How do you grow in personal godliness? If you have a path to personal godliness that's void of the church, your path is not God's path. It's just replete in scripture. His design that you are called to a body and he uses believers to encourage and bless believers. Romans 12, (coughs) excuse me, Romans 12, one and two. Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Do not be conformed to the ways of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove or test what God's perfect will is so that you might find God's will for you. God's will for you is to present all of yourself unto him. How are you going to grow in godliness? It starts with connection to the church. And it comes from intentional devotion to Christ saying, my life is not my own. I was bought with a price. My life is to be offered to the Lord for his purposes. All of my ambition, my desires, my longings, I'm setting those aside. I'm also taking thoughts captive, not being conformed to the worldly thinking, which would say, you're the king of your own domain. You're the master of your universe. Your truth matters. Our truth doesn't matter. God's truth matters. If our truth is outside of God's truth, who cares? It's it's an oxymoron. There is no truth outside of God's truth. God's truth is what matters. And so we need to be conformed to his way of thinking. And that comes through mind renewal. So how does this happen? It comes from being connected to the body. It comes through intentional offering of ourselves unto the Lord, taking our mind by the reins and directing it towards the Lord. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, it comes through disciple making. We are called to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that you've commanded. Who can you think of in your life who has come alongside of you in your walk with the Lord and helped teach you to follow Christ's instructions. What a gift from the Lord. That's a means of God's grace to growing you in your personal character. Who are you interacting with that you are seeking to teach Christ's commandments? This call from Jesus to the disciples, to the apostles, it spans beyond them. This is a call for Christians to make disciples, to be intentional in proclaiming the gospel and raising people up in the Lord. It's not, making disciples does not end at gospel proclamation. This happens in the church. We disciple one another. We encourage one another. We counsel one another. We care for one another. We teach one another from God's word. And we all should have eyes for that, both to be discipled in godliness and to make disciples. That's how this happens. Now, our passage that we're going to land in, so we, I don't think we're, I don't think we're going to move from here. Titus 2. 
And this is where we're going to narrow in on care in the body for each other and what this should look like as we help each other towards personal godliness. And Paul just really spells it out so clearly, so so rapid fire succinctly, uh, what we are called to relationally with one another and pursuing virtue. So let's start Titus 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to kind of work through these different categories that Paul puts forward here. So Titus 2, starting in verse 1. But as for you, so he's talking to Titus, as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. Not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Well, as we make our way through, I think it's, I think it's compelling that Paul starts in verse 1 with an emphasis on sound doctrine. There's not a break in the original text that somehow creates a new context of idea starting in verse 2. Sound doctrine actually produces godly living. There can be a tendency to want to pit doctrine or theology against Christian virtue. Are you a truth guy or a grace guy? Are you a truth guy? Do you know a lot? Or or are you a, a love guy? And it's true, knowledge puffs up, personal knowledge. But scripture never presents understanding, knowledge, agreement with God's word, with pride. Can we grow in pride as we learn more? Absolutely. But that actually, learn, that actually means we haven't learned it as God intends. God's truth, it might, per, it might give occasion for us, the pride that is in us, to be puffed up. But God's truth is never the problem. There is never an instance where we go, I just, I don't want to study that topic because I just don't want to be prideful. Doctrines of grace, I've seen people hold that with such pride. Hey, as long as we agree on the gospel, I'm okay to just not understand that. If it's in God's word, we should want to understand it. Eschatology though. I mean, I'm a pan mill. It'll all pan out in the end. No, God speaks specific. Maybe that's true for you today. That's okay. Don't be content to stay there. Seek to grow in what God has revealed. His knowledge is life for us. His word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. So, and address pride in your heart. Don't hold doctrine arrogantly. Repent of pridefulness 
and trust the Lord that his means to humbling you is going to be exposure to his character, his desires, his plan, his will. What else, what would humble us more than actually bringing our hearts to God's word? And yet we can think, oh, I'm just not going to worry about that heady stuff. That's fine. But worry about your Bible. (laughs) Know it. Bring your heart to God's word. Be intentional with that. Sound doctrine produces godly living. And in fact, anything that leads to a lack of godliness is in, a, is in line with bad doctrine. If you think perpetual sinning is okay or not pursuing spiritual growth is okay, that's a sign that you have bad doctrine. That's poor doctrine. Paul tells Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Old men, be godly. Old women, be godly. Young men, be godly. Young women, teach them to be godly. All of you, be godly. That's what he connects here directly to sound teaching, growing in Christian virtue. So don't pit doctrine against virtue. We're going to look at several categories. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women, all of these virtues are echoed elsewhere in scripture for the believer to embrace. There's emphasis that Paul gives here on certain categories, although he uses inclusive language. For example, in verse three, when he says older women likewise, and we'll talk about what it means to be reverent, but there's a emphasis, hey, older men are to be these things and women likewise. Like, get in with these things, and here's some other specifics that they should give attention to as well. So this isn't only older men are to be temperate, right? This, this is for all of us. But what should catch our attention is whatever category you fall into, you should be eager to throw yourself intentionally at these things. And as you listen, let's say you're an older man. Think about what God's call is for younger men. And, and think about how you can help them be what God calls them to be today and how can you care for them to help them grow to be the kind of man that older men are to be. And when you think about women in the church, how can I enhance, make easy, be a blessing, encourage the women in the church to be these types of things? Am I praying for the women in the church to be these kinds of things? So there's not really any instance where we read this and we go, well, this one applies, but this doesn't. There's implications for us in all of these instructions. So it is helpful to to recognize the emphasis that Paul gives based on gender and seasons of life, but all of us should be seeking to grow in all of these virtues and to aid one another in growing in them as well. Some of you men have maybe viewed yourselves as the younger men in the church, Uh, especially if you came from Grace Bible Church. Uh, We had a wealth of resources, a large body, 600 people, um, and maybe you saw yourself as kind of, hey, I'm just figuring things out, and that was a sweet season to be in. At Gilbert Bible Church, we have less of a pool, and we are a younger church collectively, you might actually be an older man in this context. Are you taking your sanctification seriously to be this kind of man? Have you thought about that? Are, have you been content in the past to say, hey, those are, the, those are the big dogs, the heavy swingers, leader, ministry leaders, you know, they're, they're the ones who are mature beyond, you know, what, where I'm at. 
Um, and so I'm just kind of here in my world and I'll just be faithful where I'm faithful uh, and, and I'm content with that. that. That's great. That's sweet. We need every man to be pursuing an exemplary lifestyle of what God calls these older men to be. We just can't wait around for others to get there. We need to be these kinds of men for the sake of the church, for the sake of God's glory, to maximize our usefulness for his purposes. So with that in mind, let's talk about older men. So this should be page two on your outline, older men. This word for older men is more seasoned, uh, typically for those who are walking with Christ longer. There's a matured sanctification. It's not necessarily only older in age. It's not like when you're, when you're old, you need to have these virtues. Uh, there's a, a faithfulness implied here, uh, a seasonedness in life that comes. And this is, this is where you should get. This is where you should go to spiritually, these virtues. What kind of men are more seasoned men in the church called to be? Well, first, temperate called to be temperate. This is not a common word that we use in our culture in our day, the necessity of temperance, but it's a priority for the Lord. To be temperate is to be moderate or sober-minded, and not necessarily in regards to alcohol or intoxication, although if you were constantly intoxicated or at all, you would not be characterized as being temperate. But the, the emphasis here is more just on your mental disposition, that you're steady. You're not easily thrown off course. When a trial comes, you're not undone, rushing to extremes, whether highs when things are good or lows when things are hard. You're measured in your response. In thought and in word and in action, you're self-controlled. You're restrained. You think clearly and reasonably in the face of opposition or, or trials. And this can be certainly most revealed in stresses, in trials, in temptations, in hardships. Uh, your, your lack of temperance will come out in extreme uh, fluctuations to either joy or sorrows, to anxiousness, to fear, to, you know, I stubbed my toe, the world is crashing down. Uh, it, it might be reflected in your child breaks something in the house on accident and you lose it and you can't believe they broke this and how could they do it? And all of a sudden your mind is rushing to extremes. You're not measured. You're not restrained. You're not tempered in your response. This can also come out in just passions. You get excited about a specific doctrine and you, this is what everybody needs to know. And the Lord has called me to herald this truth and impart my wisdom on everybody else. And there's extremes because I read this thing and it's so good. And all of a sudden, you're just, you're not temperate and you're thinking about the entirety of God's word. I read this in God's word. This is the truth everyone's been missing and they need to hear from me. That's not a temperate man. Rather restrained, holding things in their proper place. Temperate. Next is dignified. Older men are called to be dignified. This is respectable. There's a serious bearing in life. 
And they're able to rightly identify the need of the moment. To be dignified is to understand the context that you're in and be able to respond in appropriate measure. Dignified does not mean lacking humor or perpetually stoic. Sometimes when we, th- when we think about a dignified man, we think of someone who's just stoic all the time and very steady and sober and... To be a dignified man is not to lack joy, lack humor, lack, uh, um, yeah, puns. Yes, yes. No, actually, puns is an unspoken requirement for older men. You need to have puns. Dad jokes are a necessity. Um, But your, your thinking actually matches the need of the moment. An undignified man is either going to be overly goofy or crass or, or just have a silly bearing in life, doesn't care about faithfulness before the Lord. An undignified man may have obligations, but who cares if I get there on time or if it happens or, you know, whatever works out. They just, they don't care or may not be able to uh, correctly identify the need of the moment. Somebody's sharing a sobering, heartfelt truth and you start cracking jokes. You know, uh, uh, I think some of you have heard me tell the story about my overly excessive humor at a friend of mine's wedding. Uh, It was not uh, sinful to enjoy humor in that context, but I was undignified because of the extremity of goofiness and silliness in light of the the sobriety of the moment, lifelong covenant before God, before friends, and just nonstop cracking jokes. It wasn't helpful. It wasn't dignified for me to be that way in that moment. And so thinking through being a man of dignity, you're not careless or flippant with your life or especially your sanctification where you take lightly sin. Ah, whatever. It's all right. We're all sinners. We all fall short. You careless about sin, flippant. No, there's a seriousness to the task that God calls us to in godliness. There's a seriousness to the task that God calls us in ministry to one another. There's a serious bearing of life, a sobriety, a weightiness that comes with that. And you apply yourself to those things with diligence in light of the context of what God calls us to embrace and be a part of. So again, not stoic, joyless, lacking humor, but rather a a serious bearing in life, recognizing eternities at stake. An undignified man is going to live for the here and now, just wanting to gratify whatever's on his impulse. A dignified man recognizes in the moment there is more beyond this life, there is eternity to live for, and it brings about a steadiness and a seriousness in in relation to his bearing in life. All right, I haven't, I haven't taken a breath for a while. Any questions, comments on any of this? I think you kind of answered it, but is there a, there's not an age in, in mind here at all, like, uh, like younger women, older, older women? So typically, these words were used for older men, kind of in the 60 to 65 range. Um, which was fairly fairly older. That was kind of the category that would accompany this. I don't think Paul's point is so, more, so much a specific age. Those over 50, he could have said something like that. I think it's when thinking about the body of Christ, you have older men, you have younger men. Whatever context you're in, there's gonna be some that are older, some that are younger, more mature, less mature. 
And this is kind of what we're, this is what we are growing towards. Women, it was typically childbearing or not childbearing years was kind of how they separated those terms. And again, I think it's not necessarily that if a woman is still able to bear children, but she's very mature in the faith, she doesn't fall into this older woman category. I think she would. But the, the terms that are used were used most frequently in those terms. So kind of like 60s for men, childbearing or not for women, for older or younger. Tom? Not that this is a model for how to plan a church, but back in 2003 at Grace Bible Church, my wife was 45 and she was the oldest woman. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yep. She was an older woman. And she was invaluable to the discipleship of younger women and the growth at Grace Bible Church was slow because we did not have a pool of women who were these things. We had, we had limited. So her, her, her contribution was so impactful, so impactful, and yours as well, because the men were in the same, same boat. Um, yep, Rim. Respectable, serious bearing in life. Yep, able to rightly identify the need of the moment. And that's helpful to understand what, it, what is the context that I'm in. And am I, am I dignified in that context? Am I, am I acting in an appropriate and conducting myself in an appropriate manner in light of the need of the moment? You know, it'd be like your, your countenance your disposition, your tone, your behaviors should look different at a wedding than a funeral. Right? You, and there, there's certainly, for a believer, is overlap, you know, of joy and rejoicing. But you're, you have enough understanding to know the need of the moment and act accordingly. Okay, next, Sensible. I am more and more convinced that this virtue is absolutely crucial and has a contagious effect just on every area of your life. Tom and I have talked uh, several times in counseling, counseling each other, or really him counseling me, um, encouragement of the need for right thinking in that so much of our distresses, so much of our fears, anxiety, sin, it just all flows out of wrong thinking. And so to be sensible in your thinking has astronomical effects in every area of personal godliness. To say that the opposite way, there's no way of your life, no part of your life unaffected by your thinking. So to be sensible is going to enhance your personal godliness in every area. To be sensible, this is to be in control of yourself. It's to be prudent or thoughtful, self-controlled with the mind. Similar to temperate, you avoid extremes. A sensible person understands what they deserve before the Lord. They're not just thinking in the heat of the moment, but they're understanding at large, they're thinking rightly at large, what do I deserve before God? What have I been given from God in the gospel? What do I believe about the character of God in my immediate circumstance? 
And then they respond, what does God call me to in this circumstance? What is he in control of? What does he call me to be in control of? All of those things are going to come out of a man who is sensible. He's going to be thinking on those things. Those things are going to be impacting his thought life. And with that, will direct his actions. They're not enticed by the next fad, not enticed by worldly thinking, not overwhelmed by disappointments. Trials take their proper place. In the midst of trials, they, a sensible person remembers God's intention with trials, his call to consider them joy. Uh, you don't get starstruck by certain individuals. Right? That can happen. Somebody who's senseless sees one person and they'll put one person or multiple people on a pedestal really high and become a people pleaser. They lack sense. That's not sensible. Or they'll think overly disparaging of others, forgetting their own sinfulness and their own need for Christ's grace. S- to lack sense is just to be prone to extremes in your thinking. A sensible person is able to navigate the pressures and the trials and the hardships of life with right thinking before the Lord, measured thinking, and stability. Sensible. This is actually um, really the one that is predominantly repeated. If you look in verse 2, you see older men are to be sensible. If you look at verse, where is it? Five, uh, young women are to be sensible. They're to be taught to be sensible by the older women. And then if you look at verse six, young men are to be sensible. There's just a, a pretty unique emphasis here on the call to be sensible in your thinking. How do you get there? We're gonna talk about more of this on, on all of these things. How do you get there? Well, prayer, surrounding yourself with other Individuals who can encourage you and help your thinking. Uh, Shepherding your heart with God's word daily to know his truth, to know what God says about himself. You know, when what you've put in your life, what you've put in your mind is what's going to pop out when you're squeezed by the trials and struggles of this world. And so if you've neglected God's word in your life, To think that all of the sudden, when you get squeezed, all of the rich truth that God gives to us is going to come out is is foolish. If you've been faithful to renew your heart and your mind, to be taught God's word, to sit under teaching, to participate in things like this, to encourage one another, sharpen one another, to read your Bible and expose your heart to God's truth, when the the trials and temptations and pressures of the world compress you. We've all felt that. We've all felt those weights that come with the world where you just feel like, oh man, what do you think will come out of a life that has been faithful to renew itself in the truth of who God is and his faithfulness and his promises and his grace and his mercies and realities like we find in Romans 8, at the end where he says, if he who did not spare his own son, but offered him up freely, how much more will he give us all things? So that when this tragedy strikes, when this hardship happens, when this uncertainty arises, you're not going, God's abandoned me. Wait a minute, he sent his son for me. 
Before the foundation of time, in love, he planned to send his son for me before I even existed to be crushed and crucified and take the wrath from God on my behalf. Do I really think he's going to forget me now when he knew me before eternity? Before time began, he knew me. And, and yet in this job trial, family trial, relational trial, health trial, fill in the blank, whatever. He's going to forget me in that? For a life that has exposed itself to God's word, that's renewed its mind, there's a stability. There's that not being conformed to the ways of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind that takes place, that aids you in standing firm in the midst of those types of things. So be sensible. Pursue growing in this virtue. Next, sound in faith. Sound in faith. And we see this word sound. It's, it's literally healthy, secure, uh, well-fitted. And he applies it to the next three virtues, faith, love, and perseverance. So that sound in faith, in love, in perseverance, all of, all of those, there is to be a soundness for the man of God. To be sound, to be healthy in the faith. You, you know the teaching of scripture regarding salvation and the Christian life. You have a healthy relationship with Christ. To be sound in the faith is not just, hey, I'm good at following instructions. There's lots of people who can follow moral, moral instructions. I go to church, I open up my Bible and I read it. Uh, I do this thing for the church. I set up chairs or teach children lessons or hold babies. Those are wonderful things. Those don't automatically equal sound in faith. Sound in faith means you are, you are well-rooted in the Christian faith, which is founded upon love for Jesus. So doing good things does not equal sound in faith. Good things flows out of those who are sound in the faith, but sound in the faith is actually rooted in relationship with Christ and competency with Christian truth. I'm growing in love for Christ and I understand Christian truth, doctrine. You have a healthy relationship with Christ and, and a vibrant Christian practice. You can articulate truth and what it means to follow Christ and you live both of those things. That's what it means to be sound in faith. Also, sound in love. You abound, you excel in love. To be sound in love, you're healthy in love. Love for God, love for others. You're not prone to hold on to offenses. You're not prone to bitterness. You're not argumentative. You're not pugnacious. You're not prone to anger or outbursts. You are not self-absorbed. To be healthy in love is not love for yourself. And in fact, to be prone to self-love, self-focus, right? And this is the tendency for all of us. We're going to actually talk about this tomorrow uh, in, in, from First uh, Peter. The tendency that when trials and hardships hit, we put on blinders like a horse, you know, that's pulling a carriage, has blinders on where all you see is right here. When trials hit, all of a sudden, all the people that we're called to serve and love around us kind of fades into the background and our eyes get fixed on just our problem, that's a sign of self-love. Self-preservation, self-devotion, all of those things. To be sound in love is to be stable in love for others. 
You're not knocked off track from devoting yourself to others' good. And then sound and perseverance. You're able to hold up in the face of difficulty. You possess fortitude and steadfastness in your faith. You aren't always teetering on the edge of giving up. If one more thing happens, if you do one more thing, or if this thing happens one more time, I'm done. That's not sound and perseverance. No, you're robust in your persevering in the Lord. You're not right on the edge, ready to throw in the towel. No, you're, you're vibrant, you're healthy and persevering. Strong and persevering. Any questions on older men? Okay, we're gonna keep going. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. As a believer, older women are likewise to be reverent. This is behavior that fits a Christian. It's interesting, a, a reverent person, this person has a lifestyle consistent with one called for a specific purpose for God. This reverent behavior was expected, this, this was the type of language that was used for priestly conduct. One specifically called apart a to do work for the Lord. And I love this. I love this because in our culture, the lack of women preachers feels like an attack on God's purpose and calling for women's lives. If you say women should not hold authority over men, you're attacking or limiting God's usefulness for women for the Lord. And here, Paul uses behavior likened to priests for the behavior that older women are to have in their usefulness in the body of Christ for blessing others and glorifying God. So to tie anybody's worth for God's purposes with their public teaching ministry is just foolish. God values holiness and he esteems it. He holds it in high regard. So your, your actions for the older women, they should, their actions in their life should be consistent with one who follows Christ. They're reverent in their behavior. This is similar to, to respectable or dignified. There's a serious bearing in life that re- recognizes the call of following Christ. They're also not malicious gossips. They're not eager to know information. This is good for all of us, that we're not eager to know information that doesn't pertain to us. We're not prone to wanting to know inside scoops so that we can tell others and share our value because look what we know and it's exciting and fun to talk about, exchange the latest news of who did what and what happened here. How do you think about information that doesn't pertain to you? Are you always wanting to know what's going on with others in the church and eager to pass that on? Is there a tendency to slander? Do you find satisfaction or feel better about yourself when you are privy to others' weaknesses and others' downfalls and able to speak of those things to others? Older women are also not to be enslaved to much wine. We know from elsewhere, men are not to get drunk with wine. And this kind of goes on with the priestly idea of reverent behavior. Paul says, not enslaved to much wine. Priests were not allowed to carry out their duty if they had drink, as it would disgrace the, the priestly office. And so women are not to be dominated by thinking of wine or intoxicated by wine, not preoccupied with wine or any other substance for that matter. They're not to be malicious gossips. They're not to be not of their right mind. They are to be in their right mind. They're also called to teach what is good. Do you see that there? Teaching what is good. That's at the end of verse three. 
Don't be a gossip. Don't be drunk or undignified in behavior, particularly around alcohol, but positively teach what is good. Let your words and actions be exemplary and edifying. Control your speech to build up and edify. And what is good is is what you are to teach. This is what women are to teach young women, which means they're also to be living these things, living what is good. Men, if you're married, I think almost everybody here is married, (laughs) Uh, or thinking about a wife, how are you helping your wife grow in these virtues? How are you helping her have access to women so that she can be taught to grow in these virtues? Is, Is your view of your wife as your helper and the caregiver for your children, which we're gonna talk about these things in a minute, Is it so consuming your priority for your wife that you're neglecting serving and loving your wife by freeing her up to have these kinds of relationships to either help her become this or help her flourish in this, help her teach others to be this? Have you positioned your life to where she has capacity to be able to both grow and pour into others in this way? Okay, we're gonna... We're going to keep going here, but we're going to move a little faster. Young women, younger women, they're called to love their husbands, being husband lovers, having affection, being devoted to their husband. They're called to love their children. They're commanded to love their children. They're to, be, they're to love being a mom. Are you helping care for your wife in helping her love being a mom? Are you helping her love her children? What would that look like? What would it look like to help her not love her children? Demand extremes from her that take her away from her children? Complain with her about being a parent, right? If, if she has a hard day, oh, I know, being a parent's horrible. It's so hard. Oh, I don't even know. It's just a season. We got to get through. That would not be helping shepherd your wife to love her children. Rather, what what does the Lord say? Children are a blessing. I know it doesn't feel that way, but the Lord says so. Listen, it's a gift from the Lord to have children. What you get to do right now, what you got to do today, that is such a valuable task before the Lord. Thank you for pouring yourself out for these souls that the Lord has entrusted unto our care. What a gift. Can we pray together and thank God? for this gift of being parents, shepherd your wife to love being a mom and make it easy for your wife to love you. (laughs) Pour yourself out like Christ does for the church. She's called to love you, regardless of if you are a bonehead or not. (laughs) She's called to love you, okay? That should not be fuel to be lax in your husbanding, that should be igniter fluid on drive to make it as easy as possible for your wife to love you. I'm called to love you, honey. Well, how could you not? Look at me. (laughs) I took out the trash. I loaded the dishwasher. I folded the laundry. I put the kids down. I disciplined the kids when they needed it. I did a Bible study with the family tonight. I stopped at the grocery store on the way home. Whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) That sounds like a lot. I worked all day. You're going to tell the Lord that? <laughs> Make it easy for your wife to love you. Pour yourself out. 
Uh, next is sensible. It's not in your notes on uh, young women. And I missed that one. That's my fault. Sensible, again, we already talked about sensible. Pure, chaste, purity of thought, actions, speech. It's to be holy or set apart. What is right, young women, are to be pure before the Lord, godly, holy. They're to be workers at home. This is literally busy at home, busy keeping the home. This is the first area of responsibility for, for a wife to apply herself to, is to be faithful in the home. Help your wife in her faithfulness in the home, not by demanding her do everything in the home, right? Hey, you're called to be busy at home. That means you do all these things. No, you're, you're to be the manager of your household. Be the chief servant in your home and free up your wife and encourage her and help her embrace the call to be a good worker in the home, to be faithful in that. Kind, young women are to be kind. They're to be good. They meet the high standard. They're useful and beneficial to others, tempered in their disposition with their husbands, with their children, with everyone. There's to be a kindness, a warmth of love, and they're to be subject to their own husbands, subjecting themselves to their own husbands. There's to be a, an eager, willing, joyful submission to their husbands whom they love, even when they're not very lovable and not leading as they desire. It's still their call. And again, men, make it easy for your wife to submit to you. Don't use every liberty as a means to tell your wife what to do for your own desires right? I like things this way. Do it for me. I, I want the house kept this way. You do it the way I want it. That's what I'm used to. That's what I expect. That's how I like it. No. Well, what is her capacity? You, you might want the house kept one certain way, and you're actually inhibiting her ability to be a fruitful mother to your children because she's so preoccupied with unreasonable requests. So, so be reasonable. Be tempered. Be sensible in your requests of your wife and advocate in love for her at every opportunity. If I think this is permissible, but you'd prefer not, that's easy. I'm gonna defer to my wife. And that way, when the time comes when maybe there is a difference and at a conviction level, I need to lead her somewhere, she's gonna be overwhelmingly convinced because the nature of your life has always advocated for her good at your own expense. It's gonna be easy to submit to you. She's not going to question your motives. She's not going to question your intention. She's going to know, wow, if he's willing, if, if he really thinks this is better and he knows how I feel about it, in every opportunity that he can, he defers to my preference out of love. So if he's, if he's not deferring here, he must really believe this is right before the Lord. I, I want to follow him in this. You're a followable man in that sense. And then uh, young men... All we could handle is one, be sensible. <laughs> it's comprehensive. Hey, what's the biggest bang for the buck for young men? Don't be senseless. I mean, I, I, some of us are still young. Some of us remember what it was like to be young. We're just, we were so prone to extremes. Everything was huge in the moment. I remember time after time, big decisions coming and just being like, how am I ever going to choose? How, how am I going to make this? Oh, what is, you know, and just being so consumed by every variation of anything in life. Be sensible, be steady, think rightly, align your thinking with the Lord's. And then exemplary living for all. <coughs> uh, Paul tells Titus 
in, in light of all these things, after all these things, he gets to verse seven, in all things show yourself to be an example. So here the call is for Titus to be these things as an example for everyone to follow after. So all of us should be these things. Tom, for you and me and Tyler, there's probably specific emphasis as a leader, as Titus was here, uh, to be exemplary in, in these things, but we're all called to follow in these things, to be an example of good deeds, that's doing good, noble works, excellent works, to be pure in doctrine, teaching incorruptness, Doctrine matters. What scripture teaches has a bearing on the church. It has a bearing on our lives. We're not just prone to every new fad of doctrine and want to share it with people the first chance. No, we're, we're actually sharing truth. We're grounded. We're restrained. There can be a tendency, and listen, there are good places to say, hey, I've been thinking about this thing and I want to test my thoughts. Can you help me think through this? There are right people and circumstances to do that. If you're testing thoughts broadly in the church, that's careless. Don't do that. If you're teetering on some theological nuances that you're not convinced of, or maybe goes against the grain, and you go, hey, I'm just testing my thoughts, and you're talking to everybody about these things, and not actually taking seriously God's word or God's teaching, but you just like playing with theology, that is not good. That is, gonna, that is actually going to lead to being factious or contentious in the body because you're just sprouting out seeds of doubt or uncertainty. There is a context to have discussions. Fellowship group, hey guys, I'm working through some things and I wanna be, I wanna be measured in this could you help my thinking? I'm thinking through this or go to your fellowship group leader, go to seasoned men in the church. Don't go to every person and say, I'm playing with this doctrine. Come play with me. It's very dangerous. I've seen, seen catastrophic destruction to people's faith who persisted in that. Purity and doctrine. Dignified, serious bearing and teaching, no room for crassness. There should never be a, you know, a, a cursing pastor. Uh, we, know, we know of one. Cursing pastor, crude. Our words are to be edifying, seasoned with grace, giving grace to all who hear. There needs to be constraint in ourselves, dignified, dignity. Sound in speech, healthy. Again, that sound, that healthy word, healthy in speech, sound which is above reproach. No accusations stick regarding this man's use of words. We see the importance of words. We know that with the tongue, the, where that goes, the whole man goes. You can start a spark with the tongue that sets force ablaze and so on. There's to be healthy speech, edifying speech, beneficial speech, above reproach. And what happens from all of this? The opponent is put to shame. There's no accusation that can come against no accusation that can come against uh, those who are the Lord's. We're, we're above accusations. That's above reproach. Accusations might be spewed, but they don't stick. There's no merit to them. W what do we want to be known as a, as a church? 
Oh, that church is, that church is edgy. That church is worldly. Oh, that church loves this or that. We want to love Jesus. Let's be known as the church that loves Jesus. Let's be known as the church that loves people. Let's be known as the church that loves God's word. Let's be known as the church that loves to submit our lives to scripture and pursue holiness. That's what we're called to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these truths from your word. Lord, undoubtedly, each one of us has been indicted by this instruction. There are areas where we lack and need to grow. I know I have. Help us to pursue these things. Help us to be patient in the process of our sanctification. Spiritual growth doesn't happen all at once overnight, but it takes intentional efforts. Help us to remember the gospel that there's no condemnation for us before you, for our, for our failures, for our sins. Pray that that would be further motivation for us just to pursue godliness and faithfulness. Help us to be useful in aiding one another in these things. Thinking of Jesus' warning, that it's better to have a millstone cast, tied around your neck and cast into the sea than to cause another one to stubble. Lord, help us in our own immaturities and, and sinfulness to not lead others towards that. Help us to follow those uh, who are exemplary and help us to be followable in our lives. Help us to be useful for your purposes. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.